0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning everybody. Welcome to this resolution. Oh, hello. God, the stressful <laughs> mics. Sorry everyone in the room. Your ears have all gone. Right. Everyone else. Good morning everyone. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation and you're very welcome to this event today. Now, it's not been the overall problem of the last two months for people working in economic policy that the hours have been too short. Okay, They they have calmed down a bit, for those who are sending in emails worried about the kind of well-being of Resolution Foundation staff. Things have calmed down, all right? But overall, the shortness of the hours hasn't been the problem. um, And in general, as societies, we don't want to spend all our life working unless we've got kind of psychological flaws or made terrible choices with our life partners. So, uh, we like to see hours worked coming down, right? but the story of the last 10 years is they haven't been coming down for everybody because we haven't been growing our economy. People have been trying to maintain their living standards by working longer. They, um, so that's one thing to hold in your head. And a second thing to hold in your head is that we really want to raise the living standards of those on low incomes and particularly those low earners who are on lower uh, incomes. And that can sometimes require working more hours, right? They, um, and that is what you call attention. And some of the most interesting stuff in economic policymaking is where and we write reports on both those things. Right? We write reports saying, look what's happening at the bottom end of the labour market. Some people can't get the hours they want. That's a problem. And then we also write reports saying uh, the long term improvement in living standards in Britain has slowed down. And therefore, we're not reducing our hours as much as we used to, particularly women over the course of the last 15 years. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, And so what's important in life is to recognise tension and then to see what you can do to resolve it. Not because there's necessarily like the right answer that magically resolves it, but to understand what's behind those tensions. And one of them, which is what we're going to discuss today, is what should policymakers and people and interested people think about the fact that in modern Britain, people who have lower hourly earnings work shorter hours than those on middle and higher earnings. And that that is a contributor to our higher inequality, right? Quite a material one. It's why weekly wage inequality is higher than hourly wage inequality, which has been called. So that is the exam question. It's like a kind of, this is like a kind of, I don't know, it's like a it? what is going on? What should we think about that? Except there may be more than one killer. Okay, so that is the plan for today. To help us do that, uh, uh, Louise Murphy, uh, an economist at the foundation, has published a great report out this morning, Constrained Choices. You see where this is going. We're not subtle people in our headlines. Digging into exactly this question, kindly supported by the Health Foundation as part of a longer-term piece of work into how the labour market is shaking out for younger workers in particular. And then we've got a great panel to discuss it. So first of all, you're going to hear from Catherine Chapman, who's Director of the Living Wage foundation of which we're obviously big supporters uh, and the living wage foundation doesn't just encourage employers to pay a higher hourly wage rate but encourages them to at least offer longer hours to those uh, not long hours but longer hours to those uh, that want them and then you're going to hear from sarah o'connor who's the columnist at the financial times and has now for quite a long how, how many years when, when did you start employmenting Six oh, years, oh. quite a long time. In the dawn of time, uh, Sarah started writing great columns on the world of employment and has never stopped since. So, um, so she's exactly the right person to be telling us the answers to these questions. And then we're gonna get questions from all of you, which as always, you can put in via Slido. So that is the uh, plan, everybody. By the way, it's hashtag low hours on Slido. If you want to go in, go and do that. So what is in the report, Louise? Kick us off.
1: Um, So, I'd like to start by saying thank you to my colleagues at the Resolution Foundation for their support with this project. So, as Torsten mentioned, in general, we should see working shorter hours as a good thing and indeed, a key part of what economic progress looks like. In developed countries, the long-run trend has been for working hours to fall. For example, in the UK, in the 50 years leading up to 2018, the average working week fell from 37 to 32 hours, equivalent to a fall of one hour a decade. And, as we can see on this chart, when we look to some of our richer and more productive neighbours, like Germany and the Netherlands, the average worker in these countries spends less time at work than the average British worker. But, when we consider the current state of affairs in the UK, the picture is less bright. For both men and women, it's the lowest paid workers who work the shortest hours, while those with higher hourly pay have the longest working week. For women, this has been the case for quite a long time, with the gap in working hours between the highest and lowest paid workers remaining fairly constant since the 1990s. What we can also see in this chart is that for women across the earnings distribution, average working hours have been gradually increasing in recent decades. By 2021, Women at the top end of the earnings distribution work 10 hours longer than women at the bottom end of the hourly wage distribution. For men, the picture is a bit more nuanced. In the long run, there's been quite a big reversal. In the 1970s, for example, it was the least educated men who worked the longest hours. We can also see in this chart that there was further change in the 1990s and early 2000s. For example, the gap in working hours between the highest and lowest paid men increased from three hours in 1997 to peak during the financial crisis and then settle at five hours in 2021. And this concentration of shorter working hours among those with low hourly pay has real implications for workers living standards. The UK has made considerable progress in reducing the extent of low hourly pay in recent years largely thanks to the increases in the national living wage. For example, it has risen by 27% in the last five years. This means that the proportion of employee jobs that are in low hourly pay, that's hourly pay that's less than two-thirds of the median, um, has fallen by 10 percentage points since 2015. We can see that on the chart on the screen. But when we're thinking about workers' living standards, it's weekly earnings that matter. And these reflect hours worked as well as just hourly pay. And the proportion of employee jobs that are in low weekly pay, that's weekly pay that's less than two thirds of the median, um, has fallen not so fast. It's fallen by just four percentage points since 2015. Strikingly, this means that in 2021, among all workers who are in low weekly pay, only two in five were in low hourly pay yet almost nine in ten were working part-time. This also has implications for the nation's inequality. The concentration of shorter working hours among people on low hourly pay means that overall inequality in individual earnings is higher than inequality in hourly wages. By the end of the 2010s, it was almost twice as high. So, it's clear that trends in working hours are complex and, as Torsten mentioned, they create tensions that are often difficult to reconcile. On the one hand, we want average working hours to fall as we become a richer and more productive economy. But on the other hand, this concentration of part-time work among workers at the bottom end of the hourly wage distribution um, is holding back living standards and is contributing to high levels of inequality. I'll now walk you through the main findings of our report, in which we combined quantitative analysis with findings from four focus groups, which helped give us insight into low-paid workers' motivations for working part-time. In doing so, I'll aim to give policymakers a clearer sense of how to navigate these competing considerations. First, I'll focus on some of the reasons why we might be relaxed about the current prevalence of part-time work among low earners. First, this feature of our labour market is not a growing one. Although men work shorter hours now than they did in the 1990s, and low paid men still work shorter hours than higher paid men, most of this reduction in low paid men's working hours took place some time ago. In fact, as we can see in this chart, between 2012, when the economy was recovering from the financial crisis, and the eve of the COVID-19 pandemic, men's working hours marginally increased, with low-paid men catching up slightly with higher-paid men. And we can also see that women's working hours increased substantially. More generally, the proportion of all workers who are doing part-time work has been gradually falling in the past decades, down from a peak of 28% in 2012 to reach 24% in 2021, meaning that the prevalence of part-time work in the UK now is similar to in the early 2000s. And the labour market looks quite a lot different now than it did a decade ago. Unemployment has been low in recent years. In fact, at least it reached its lowest rate in 50 years earlier in 2022. There's been a similar reduction in underemployment. That's workers who would prefer to work longer hours at their current rate of pay. Um, fears, therefore, that you know, we would be left with a legacy of high underemployment for years to come have not come true. And although underemployment is consistently higher among workers on low hourly pay than those on higher hourly pay, as we can see in this chart, it's clear that underemployment in 2022 is low by historic terms. And these lower levels of underemployment reflect what we heard in our focus groups, when many workers spoke about part-time work in fairly positive terms. Workers often felt like part-time work was their choice and something that was good for their well-being, their stress levels, which was something that contributed to their sense of self and something that meant that work did not obstruct their home life. Consistent with this, quantitative data shows that there is no part-time penalty when it comes to well-being. In fact, part-time and full-time workers have similar levels of well-being which are much higher than those who are unemployed or who are economically inactive due to long-term sickness. But, while low-paid workers spoke about many positive aspects of part-time work and the shape of the UK labour market is more promising than it was a decade ago, there are still reasons for policymakers to be concerned. The first issue is that there is a pay and progression penalty attached to part-time work and this has real living standards consequences. Part-time work is concentrated in certain low-paying sectors and those looking for part-time work face far fewer options than those who are able to work full-time. For example, as this chart shows, in 2015, just one quarter of part-time workers felt like their job had prospects for advancement, compared to almost two-fifths of full-time workers. This has consequences in the long run. For example, there's evidence that a quarter of the wage gap between men and women with grown-up children is explained by the increased likelihood of women working part-time rather than full-time when their children are young. It's this part-time work that entails a lack of pay progression. And what makes this even more worrying is that part-time workers are increasingly concentrated in lower-income families. Although there might have been a kind of historical view that part-time workers are topping up um, the income of a family that has a higher-income family member, This is rarely the case today. And although underemployment has fallen back to levels of the early 2000s, there are significant concentrations of underemployment and involuntary part-time work among lower paid and younger workers. Among men working part-time, there's a strong gradient to underemployment. In 2021, one in five part-time men at the bottom quintile of the hourly wage distribution were underemployed, compared to just 7% of those in the top quintile. And Underemployment and involuntary part-time work are much more common among young people. When we look at young people who are not in full-time education, we can see in this chart that by the end of the 2010s, almost half of young men and a third of young women stated that they are working part-time because they could not find a full-time job. And, while workers in our focus group spoke positively about working part-time, they acknowledged that they made decisions around their working hours within considerable constraints. For some, working part-time is the only way that they can achieve flexibility and balance work with their other commitments. And this is a constraint that affects those in lower hourly pay more than those in higher hourly pay. For example, some workers told us that the only way that they could avoid working on weekends or evenings, which they often wanted to do um, because of unavoidable caring commitments or to preserve time to see friends and family, was to accept a part-time job. These constraints differ considerably between different sectors, but they affect low-paid workers more than higher-paid workers. We can see in this chart that almost two-fifths of workers in the bottom pay quintile regularly work on weekends, compared to just 6% of those in the top quintile. Workers in our focus groups spoke openly about some of these constraints that affect their decision-making. For some, there were clear barriers to working full-time, such as high childcare costs or health problems. As one participant put it, there's just no incentive to working longer hours when most, if not all, of those extra earnings would be going to a childcare provider. For others, the main constraint was that low paid work is often of poor quality and feels unfulfilling and insecure. Under these constraints, some workers spoke about how they choose to work as few hours as they could to cover their outgoings, saying that the extra pay from working more hours in what were unpleasant or unfulfilling jobs was just not worth it to them. And as well as being an unpleasant feature of people's jobs, participants also reflected on how the prevalence of insecure work in today's labour market influenced their decision-making when they thought about changing jobs. Many workers felt that the state of the labour market made it too (coughs) risky to consider changing jobs, although most believed that in the current tight labour market there would be jobs out there offering full-time hours. People felt that these jobs would either be too insecure or might not actually involve having um, full-time hours in the long run, and therefore moving jobs just didn't feel like a a viable option. Finally, many workers reference these constraints within the context of the current cost of living crisis. Many spoke about the months and years ahead with a sense of powerlessness and despondency. Workers spoke openly about the challenges they expect to face with bills and housing costs rising fast, but they rarely felt able um, to respond to these. Their preferences around working hours or constraints like childcare costs meant that few felt like they had the ability to increase their working hours to respond to these rising costs. So, what should policymakers think about these findings? We conclude that we should not overstate the amount of agency that low paid workers have when um, thinking about their working hours. Although there are aspects of part-time work that people value, the constraints facing low paid workers, such as norms of shorter working hours in certain firms, poor health, high childcare costs, or the idea that full-time work is unreasonably stressful, means that often, workers have no meaningful alternative to working part-time and the fact that part-time work is concentrated among low earners in the UK should make it clear that we have not reached some high leisure time high productivity utopia policymakers therefore have the ability to improve the living standards of low paid part-time workers for example they should focus on improving job quality and flexibility for low paid workers So that part-time work isn't seen as a coping strategy for people doing unsatisfactory work. Similarly, part-time work should not be the only route for low-paid workers to achieve the flexibility that higher paid workers take for granted, such as doing the school run or keeping weekends free. Third, they should consider the wider constraints that disincentivise firms from offering full-time jobs and that prevent workers from upping their hours. For example, the pair worker national insurance contributions for employers. Finally, policymakers should consider how to reduce the instance of part-time work among young people, given that this is often involuntary and that the pay and progression penalty that is associated with part-time work is likely to hinder their future careers. Thanks very much.
0: Great, thank you Louise. Great job. I hope you appreciate the working together there of what the data is telling us and what the data can't tell us which is basically why people do what they do and how they're balancing in their heads to like what the world's doing to you and your own choices and those are turns out you can't get from a spreadsheet right uh catherine thank you should i go ahead? or, or you yep. sit wherever you want <laughs> um. well not wherever you want up there, up there <laughs> or here <laughs> um,
2: good morning everyone thank you resolution foundation louise for um this really interesting piece of research and i think it is quite an under-researched area, really, given the importance of it. So it's great to be part of this discussion. Um, I'm the Director of the Living Wage Foundation. Um, probably, hopefully, most will know us that we um, have an independent uh, real living wage calculation, which we ask employers to pay um, to their direct staff and in uh, on-site contractors. There's nearly 12,000 across the UK. But one of the big issues for us that Torsten mentioned earlier, and we launched a couple of years ago, is what we're calling living hours. So it's a new benchmark for employers that we developed after kind of 18 months' work with living wage employers, low-paid workers, unions, labour market experts, that's about tackling underemployment, which we've talked about a bit today. Um, but also, and I think a key part of this debate that needs to be always borne in mind, is the volatility um, and the precariousness of what can be... Term to kind of short contracts or part-time work. So it's about shift notice, shift cancellation. That's a really important dimension to it. And particularly, I think if you're talking about whether this is a choice or not, that's a really important piece to bear in mind. And we have dug into that a bit at the foundation. So I was going to kind of talk about that a bit today as a kind of flavor to, to this debate. So we did some work back in 2021 that looked trying to kind of define both low-paid and insecure work. So this was people who were saying that were on casual contracts, so agency, seasonal, fixed term, but not but who didn't want but who wanted a didn't sorry who wanted didn't want permanent jobs. So these ruling out people who were doing this by choice, basically. Um, but also people who re- reported volatile hours um, and we found that there are about 6.6 million of those overall and up just over half 56 percent were also earning below the real living wage which we would define as so that's a significant rump of people about 3.7 million um, who are in both the short contracts or part-time work and volatile experiencing that volatility with that so who was impacted in that it was a u-shape in terms of kind of age so young people and then older people Um, It was a relatively, so much like these findings, gender split when it came to that, although, um, like this research has found, part-time male workers um, were the most likely of all to be in low-paid, insecure work. But this does have to be seen in the context of overall more uh, women in in part-time work overall. Um, Workers from different um, minority ethnic groups experienced it, so particularly Bangladeshi and Pakistani workers were most likely to experience low paid insecure work. Disabled workers were more likely to experience low-paid, insecure work. Regional variations, so Wales and the North East had the highest um, comparative levels of insecure workers compared to say Scotland, the South East and London. And as you said, it was clustered in specific industries. I think agriculture, forestry and fishing was actually the highest, but accommodation and food services by far the biggest in terms of volume. So it is really important in reducing a range of the inequalities that we already know exist in our society and in the labour market. But coming back to this point, point, I guess, about choice or circumstances, which is really hard to kind of understand. And it's really interesting, these focus groups you've done as part of this. What we did was we've been starting to see these, these series of bi-quarterly pollings, which are living hours index, which is digging into specifically this point about shift notice periods, shift patterns, and kind of contracts where they are or aren't wanted. And, and you know, some of the evidence that we found would suggest that for, these, for this rump of people at the uh, low paid end of the labour market, it often, you know, it often isn't a choice, really. So we found that those that had contracts, over first of all, over two thirds typically worked more than those contracts anyway. Um, Hence the bit in our standard about a right to request a contract that actually reflects hours worked. 87% who define themselves as being on a 0 hours contract wanted more hours. And those on a one to eight hour contract, so sort of moving up the scale of the short contract, 63% wanted more hours. So there's kind of an inverse relationship between the length of the contract you're on and wanting more hours. On the shift notice point, and this I think is, is where it is really important in terms of living standards and experience, 50% of workers earning below the real living wage are getting less than a week's notice of their shifts. And I always remember talking to Security Guard, a big logistics company, who had three children and he'd get his rota on a Friday night, sometimes a Saturday morning for the following week. You can't plan a life, you can't plan childcare, you can't plan a budget in that, and you know, th- this is the kind of bit, I think, where as policymakers and businesses is what we need to try and tackle. Um, and then of course there's shift cancellation, so a third we're getting unexpected shift cancellations and within that two-thirds we're getting less than half of the wage. So you're really, you know, you're really losing out on the money as well, as well as not being able to plan. And then something we're also calling an insecurity premium, if you like, which is that of, it, of that cohort as well, a quarter were are having to pay more because of last-minute childcare and travel costs. So not just you losing the income, you're paying more. Um, and when we were looking at that, we're talking here it's around it's like £20 to £40 pounds a month, so not insignificant amounts. And so you can start to build up this picture of how difficult life becomes for this group of people who are on these low-paid and insecure contracts. Um, and again, we did some research a couple of months ago just digging down to the ethnicity points, And it's quite stark, actually, that nearly half, so 45% of minority ethnic workers were given less than a week's notice of shifts compared to 28% of white workers. Um, they were also more likely to have hours cancelled unexpectedly compared to white workers, in turn, leading to higher childcare costs and all the rest of it. So it has, you know, it has this inequalities impact as well. It's just compounding some of the things that we already know exist in the UK labour market. And what does this mean for people? I mean, you probably don't need, to need me to spell it out, but it's difficult to plan a budget to financially plan, it can impact social security payments. So these fluctuating level of hours, about a third of workers reported that it, you know, just added another layer of income volatility in terms of what you were going to get from benefits. In turn, increased reliance on debts, credit cards, and negatively impacting family life. You know, you can't plan time with your children, last minute childcare. And also social and community life. And, you know, this is part of the youth um, work. And we had a big event a couple of weeks ago during our Living Wage Week about bringing together some of our living hours employers. And there was a young person there who was a barista in a coffee shop in Glasgow. And he was talking about before his employer became a living hours employer and providing that security and those guarantees, he basically never went out. He didn't know how to pay his bills. He would just say to his friends, oh, I, I don't know when my shifts are happening. So he just kind of had to opt out of that. You know, that is... You know quite a significant thing for a young person's mental health their ability to, to have networks and all the rest of it you know it's not it's not what we want to be seeing in our society i don't think it impacts mental health stress um, and of course entrenches inequalities. so that's a bit of a flavor that i suppose we would bring to it um, i guess to end on a positive you know it's, it's good to see some of the data in there about that this is not necessarily um a hugely growing problem but it is still a really significant problem and it's really impactful to um, lots of people in the labor market I guess the good news from our perspective um you know because we're about working with employers to set that kind of voluntary benchmark to go further that we have seen a real surge in interest of employees wanting to sign up with a living hours um, mark um, in the recent six to 12 months because i think realizing that that instability during a cost of living crisis is quite a toxic combination and the employees that have signed up to it um you know i mentioned that the guy earlier from the coffee shop in glasgow but they are reporting like with the living wage Happier, more motivated workforce, absenteeism going down, turnover goes down. All of these factors that you might expect when you provide some of the basics, if you like, of kind of kind of decent work at that end of the labour market. So, yeah, I just wanted to end there, but it's a great debate uh, to be had. And yeah, we we just we'd love to work with more employers and and policymakers to introduce some of those guarantees on the components I mentioned. Great, right, thank you, Catherine. <laughs>
0: analysing it, but doing something about it. Very good. Sarah.
1: Um,
3: can I be lazy and stay sitting down?
0: You can do whatever you, you, lie down, you can sit down, you can stand <laughs> on your
3: head. Okay. Um,
0: We're very flexible here.
3: First of all, I thought this was a great piece of work. This is a, a sort of conundrum that has been bothering me for a while. You know, it's, I think it's really striking, that chart, where you see the extent to which the minimum wage has really um, improved hourly pay, and yet when you look at the weekly, it's just this this growing gap so it's it's brilliant that you kind of took the time to to look into this I thought it was really really great that you did the focus groups because as you say there's lots of questions that can't be answered with spreadsheets Um so I thought I'd just sort of talk about two different um, topics that <coughs> I thought about when I when I read this report the first question which we just discussed just a bit is you know to what extent is work itself the problem here um, So you referred to the fact that uh, people in the focus groups, some of them said, (coughs) you know, the work is just really stressful and this is a way of basically staying sane, you know, um, and this idea that actually job satisfaction, particularly for lower paid workers, has fallen much more than it has for higher paid workers. I mean, I I hear that a lot when I am talking to workers and and often it's kind of like subtle small things, but cumulatively it just starts to um feel unmanageable so you know people's breaks have been cut or dropped free food is, is no longer free or available i remember um a few years ago writing about uh a um a restaurant chain where it used to be that you could have a free meal in your break and you could choose from the menu and then they said right from now on it has to be spaghetti pomodoro <laughs> that's the only option well, every day yeah the only thing I you quite like it, eat but not is forgetting <laughs> the
0: um,
3: and you know things like that. It's like it's so small, but actually cumulatively, yeah. you know, all of these kind of like you know, the, the maybe these days we call them microaggressions, but I think they, they kind of add up to just feeling undervalued and and pissed off, um, and yeah, also just more tired. I mean, I, we know from um, the surveys on sort of work quality that work intensification has gone up, so people are particularly at the lower end are just having to work harder. And I do think that there is some evidence to suggest there might actually be a link with the minimum wage. So for all that the minimum wage has been a good thing in the sense that it has raised hourly earnings, it looks, at least from the stuff that the Low Pay Commission has put out, that it didn't actually prompt employers to invest in brilliant machines. It didn't necessarily prompt them to invest in skills. What it persuaded them to do was just make people work harder and to try and save labour costs in every other way they possibly could. Um, and so while you're getting a higher hourly wage, your job has just become a bit more unpleasant. So I, I thought that was interesting. And then the other piece that I wanted to draw out was this idea of people actually saying that taking a part-time contract allows me to sort of defend my my time a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think we're actually kind of, we're familiar with that concept among higher paid yeah. workers. Um, so Cla- Claudia Goldman, um, Golden, sorry, at Harvard has come up with this concept of greedy jobs. Um, so and she's talking about, you know, these are lawyers and bankers and you know journalists. <laughs> people whose employer basically says, right, we own you now. And if, you know, we want you to do whatever we want you to do whenever we want you to do it.
0: The FT would never do that.
3: No. Obviously not. Um, but, you know, there are certainly people in my profession <coughs> who work a four-day week even though they actually normally work on that fifth day. And I say to them like, you're taking a voluntary 20% pay cut, why are you doing this? And they say, because it gives me the right one day a week to say no. You know, if the news desk calls, I can say, this is my day off, I'm not doing it. So even though they might still be catching up on stuff, it just gives them that chance to resist. So I think it's really interesting that actually what you're hearing from the lower paid workers is exactly the same, exactly the same thing really. And I, because I'm a bit of a a weirdo, I spend a lot of time just reading job adverts um, And you do see quite a lot, and I think increasingly, job adverts that say things like the contract is five in seven. So you'll be working a five day week in a seven day week, but we're not going to tell you which five days. (laughs) Uh, It could be any five days. It might change every week. And that's, you know, that's ruinous if you've got a family. Um, So I can completely see why in that that scenario, you'd rather take a kind of fixed part time contract where you know what those shifts are going to be. And then you can plan the rest of your life and indeed your childcare around it. Um so that's the piece on work. And then I just wanted to mention what it feels to me that there's a DWP shaped elephant in this room that <laughs> we haven't talked much about the welfare system. Yep. The extent to this is either part of the problem or indeed could be part of the solution. Um, so, I mean, you guys know much more about this than I do. So correct me at any point if I'm wrong. But, you know, it used to be and certainly um, from the new labor era onwards with working tax credits there was an incentive to basically have a 16 hours a week yep. job um and i remember being in bolsover in in the midlands and talking to some young women um and just asking them about about their work and they all worked 16 hour jobs and i was like oh right why 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 do you work 16 hours and they were like all the jobs are 16 hours like that's literally that's what a job is in this town is a 16 hour job that's what exists Um, And I remember some people, in fact, who wanted to work full-time would be doing two 16-hour jobs, (laughs) piecing them together because employers were literally just offering that. Um, Obviously, universal credit, part of the hope was that that would kind of get rid of that Mm -hmm. um, and so that you could have people with a much sort of smoother... I'm curious to know and maybe you know the extent to which that has been the case. Um, And then my second question is, it's quite clear, isn't it, that government really would like these people that you're talking to to work more hours um in work conditionality is a thing in universal credit um in the latest autumn statement or budget or whatever we're meant to call it these days fiscal hoo-ha um jeremy hunt said that they're going to increase the number of people to whom that will apply and for people who don't know that's basically if you're working under a certain number of hours is it 15 between 15 and 35 um You'll have to go in and see a work coach, and the work coach will be sort of harassing you to try and get more hours, or try and get a promotion, try and move to a different job. Can they officially call it harassing?
0: Sorry, badgering, <laughs> encouraging, <laughs> encouraging, supporting. <coughs>
3: supporting. I'm sorry, that's the word. Apologies to any DWP officials sorry. watching. Sorry to the work coaches. Um, sorry to the work coaches who are very supportive, um, but you know, and there, and there will be, I think, a risk of, of sanction if you if you aren't complying with that. So I would be I would inter- I'd be interested to know. Louise, what you think about, given everything that you now know about this group of people, do you think that policy intervention is a good one and will be effective?
0: Great, thank you very much. Some answers and questions. <laughs> uh, good. The journalist I can't help yeah, with well, questions. The journalist always has some questions. That's <laughs> a, that's a, it's good, They're, even on the day off. Uh, right, then, uh, as I said at the beginning, you can put your questions in on Slido, it's hashtag low hours, and we've got lots in. I thought we might try and take this conversation th- through the substance, like what's going on in the data, like what's happening in the country, as far as we know. uh, I mean, basically follow your logic of like, things we're relaxed about, good, keep it up. And then what are we actually worried about? And then that probably takes you to your policy answers Mm -hmm. because you probably want to focus on things you're worried about, not on stopping the things that you're uh, quite relaxed about. And there's a few questions that are basically asking each of those, so let's take those in so there's a few questions for clarification for you Louise on what are we actually seeing happening so why don't we do first of all Margaret's asking basically how much is this a with and without children issue so the question here how do patterns vary between men and women and with and without children where you've got like a kind of cross tab so yeah what's going on
1: yeah so I think um I guess the picture is very gendered so for a woman having children Obviously, has a big impact on their working hours. We see, um, when we look at like women's hours over their lifetime, it's actually women at the younger age groups, so sort of 18 to 24, they actually work longer because when they enter their late 20s, they're more likely to have children and their their hours decrease. So for women, having children is a big deal. Um, for men, actually, and you know, I think is uh, something that we should maybe be concerned about is that there's very little kind of working hours penalty, or whatever we want to call it, attached to having children. Um, it's men kind of at later stages of their, their life that work longer hours. Um, so I think we can't really say, in general, that it's about having children. I think we need to look at differences between men and women.
0: One thing that from your focus groups is that there are men saying I mean, overall, unless you, you're being polite to men, like there's basically zero change to male average earnings when the kids turn up or not, which is quite staggering given that it's like, you know, forget everything else in your life, it's the thing that changes it. But, um, uh, but your focus group did have quite a lot of men saying they wanted they were working part time so they could do childcare-related tasks, right? And not just the young kids, for older kids. So, uh, do we just think that's just some men are cutting hours and other men are increasing them when they have kids because they're earning, they need to earn more money? What do we think's the balance. There's churn yeah. in the average, basically.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I think something perhaps more positive is that in our focus groups, we did hear some men speak about how they feel that sort of social norms are changing. Men were kind of increasingly saying that they're making these decisions at a family level and that they were considering about, you know, how they can adapt their hours to, um, you know, to, to fit the school run in, for example. And we mean, a lot of older men in particular kind of reference that Twenty years ago, a man working part time would have been quite bizarre, and some said yeah. that would have felt quite shameful. Whereas now, they actually said when they saw their friends going part time, they were quite envious. So that was interesting. That perhaps it might be slow, but we might be seeing some of that sort of wider social change happening.
0: And as your data shows, like, the actual change happens in the late 90s, early mm-hmm. 2000s, basically, and then 20 years later, everyone says it's not totally weird uh, anymore. Um, so what about for you on just on this big picture of Part time, so I think most people probably having listened to like labour market debates in the last 20 years probably think part time work has been growing, probably, because they think everything apart from full time work has basically. Mm. Whereas <coughs> actually, yet yeah, there's like a boom in there's a cyclical boom in it during the financial crisis. I want not we'll overdo it, there's an uptick, but broadly it's like a slow decline since mm. 2003. Like, so there's a, I can't remember when the peak is, but basically there's a broad decline, didn't you know, it? Why do we think the opposite is going on, or do we think that?
3: Yeah, I think probably because people just lump a lot of things together, don't they, in the in the reporting. So, you know, it's similar to this idea of the, the sort of gig economy. People just sort of think, as you say, everything that's sort of atypical yep. is on the rise and everything that isn't atop, atypical is declining. And obviously, you know, the big thing that really changed Uh, over the last 10 years since the financial crisis wasn't really the growth in part-time work, it was the growth in self-employment. So there was a fall in traditional full-time employee jobs, but people hearing that might have thought it was because there was a big rise in part-time work, whereas actually it was more about um, self-employment. So, yeah, I would say, I mean, I remember um, during the financial crisis, it did really feel as if there was a lot of underemployment, didn't there? Like a lot of people were desperate for more hours and it felt as if you know, for people on the kinds of jobs that yeah. that, that you've been talking about. Um, whether or not you got extra hours was like a key part of whether you were being well rewarded in your job. It was almost like a kind of yeah. um, a disciplinary thing, like, oh, no, I've done something <coughs> wrong, they're going to cut my hours. Yeah. Um, and it definitely doesn't feel like that is such a kind of salient issue for people anymore.
0: That's what a tight labour market will do to you. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a second. OK, um, Catherine and then on Louise on this one, which is basically so on the like, the bad bits of being a part-time worker, mm. so basically, there's two that we, you highlighted. There's basically, you're earning less weekly wise when it's actually happening, right? So not having the extra hour cost you the actual money that you don't yeah. earn, right? Then there's the, the doing of part-time work, does it, le- it definitely has a lower average wage, but the question is basically saying, is it lower or is it just, it's a lower paying occupation? Like basically, is, is there a within occupation part-time penalty?
2: Um <clears throat> is there within occupation part-time penalty? Um I think I guess the the bit that we're coming at it from is yeah. the people who are in those low paid part-time work where it's not necessarily a choice, and yeah. that is gonna okay. be the case within certain sectors more than others. Um and in terms of the penalty for that, I think it's yes. Um, you know, in, in a number of different ways, which I talked about earlier. Um so I guess that's the bit that we're concerned. So all the, the things you're saying are, you know, absolutely Really interesting but there is still this rump there isn't there that are like and particularly yep. interesting what you said about kind of male part-time workers um on some of the lowest hourly rates and the work we've done suggests that they are looking for more hours and that's where the problem is and that has a whole load of negative consequences for family life community life but also their incomes over time yeah um and I guess from our point of view, that's the bit in this whole debate that we should be looking at, um, is that kind of bottom bit where it isn't really a choice and it's also linked in with this volatility point as well. Um, So it's not just the hourly contract, it's how that contract is experienced um, and managed. Yeah. Louise? Yeah, so I think I agree with that. I think, um,
1: yeah, if we look at just sort of the raw difference between Mm. average wages for part-time and full-time workers, there is quite a big penalty. Um, but a lot of that is to do with things like occupation and industry. Yeah. So when we yeah. condition for those, the gap is much smaller. So it is worth making that clear that, for example, if we think about you know, an entry-level barista, more often than not, that hourly wage for someone working 16 hours and someone working 30 hours will be the same. But I guess what that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. especially the progression point is quite salient. So, for example, we did some research a few years ago that showed that workers who are on um, low pay are much more likely to escape low pay if they move into full-time work, yeah. whereas those that remain in part-time work kind of tend to remain stuck on on low pay. Yeah. Um, so just because and stuck meant, like
0: stuck meant over years. Yeah, it mean, was exactly. like over like we followed people for like six, uh, more than six years, I think, in the data. Yeah. And it was like they didn't you not get you're not getting out if you're doing part-time work. Yeah. Basically, the um, tiny percentage chance. Yeah. The um, uh, great, okay, um, the, um, there's one on that's asking, so we, this is mainly, this report is looking at over like decades, but there, is, there are some interesting trends going on in the more recent past, and someone's asking here, has the part-time, uh, sorry, has the homeworking thing changed the part-time thing? The, um, and in general, as you say, policymakers are all like, it's, we've, got some big, we've got a big problem, people aren't working enough, mm-hmm. but actually on... Um, the move to homework and the rest hasn't, if anything, is reducing. Is pushing down part-time working, basically, because women don't have to do it. Do, have we? We didn't. Have we got the chart on the uptick? It's basically all full-time, isn't it? Women's increase since the pandemic.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we saw a fall in women working part-time and almost exactly a kind of coinciding
2: rise in full-time work among women since the start of the pandemic.
0: Yeah. So the um, so homeworking has done has not done that basically in um, any way.
2: And also, obviously, the kind of jobs we're talking about here, like hospitality, they're, they're not affected so much by are going to be home yeah. working yeah. if you're the barista. Yeah, exactly. No
0: one wants you to make their coffee from home. Yeah. The, um, unless you happen to live very close. The, um, yeah. Although I'm still shocked. P- people keep advertising for like home delivery of coffee. Mm. I even saw someone doing it the other day. I was like, what's happened to... I don't want to be stuck-in-the-mud people, but don't home deliver your coffee. Make it yourself <coughs> or go for a little walk and get a life. The, um, that is not the roots to a high productivity society, or a good one for that matter. I hope you feel really dirty when they deliver you the coffee through the door. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. There, there's no judging here. Um, obviously. Right, okay. Let's move on to the relaxed bits of this before we get on to the, like, the depressing stuff. So, on the relaxed stuff, I mean, I, I remember talking to Louise the morning after you came back from the four folks groups we did over time, older and younger workers. And um, and obviously we spent a lot of our time recently looking at some quite depressing charts. Okay, it'd um, uh, be nice to have some wage growth. It'd be nice to have some growth, actually. Um, full stop. They, um, but I'd say you came back. I don't want to use the word perky. <laughs> um, but you'd heard a lot of you'd heard a lot of people. People basically. I think the one thing that's dangerous looking at data is it can make you think people think their lives are worse than those people mm. do. And I regularly hear that around here, people saying like, oh, everything's all, people always say, like all those books that say, oh, every job out there is awful. And then you go and ask workers and they're like, no, I quite like my job, I like the people, they, um, I'd like this thing to improve. Like, they're not saying everything's perky, but people, I think, generally think their work is better than, um, so go on, tell us about your perkiness.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we don't want to overdo it, but I think what I guess the main takeaway for me was that even when people were speaking about constraints, childcare costs or ill health, they often framed it in quite a positive way, so people saying, you know, I couldn't work full-time because I need to be there for my daughter but I really value that time with her, Um, you know, as a parent that's really important to me. Um, Even we had some quite sort of upfront conversations about the cost of living crisis, people were you know, very aware of the difficult choices they're going to have to be making over the coming months. Um, but again, people didn't see that as just a kind of terrible thing. They didn't talk about how their lives were much worse now than in the past. People spoke about, um, you know, actually, we're going to be able to make that work. People said, you know, I might shop at Aldi rather than Tesco. But, you know, if that means I can preserve my work-life balance, if it means that I can overall feel less stressed, those are kind of decisions that I'm happy to make. And so I think, to me, the takeaway was we shouldn't just look at the kind of negative things that actually people take the positives where they can find them.
0: Humans make choices. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on this general thing, on so um, so in newspaper land, actually, and in, in TV land, basically the news or the interest is obviously the bad thing generally, like, and in think tank land to, to a degree. They, um, so do you think we underdo the, good bits people take from the like good edges to the things that we're worried about on the bad side what do you think
3: yeah we probably do um i had a i wrote an interesting um to me <laughs> column <laughs> I loved uh, it. a few months ago about uh, like what makes a good job and yeah. i i just asked people all kinds of people yeah. um you know what was the best job you ever had and it was really fascinating, like, the... just they all the f- said the resolution about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm working for Torsten. Um
0: Excellent jobs. Just
3: the huge variety of the kinds of jobs that people talked about, you know, from very low-paid jobs to, like, very well-paid jobs. Um, and also, the kind, you know, the reasons that people singled out were sometimes completely the opposite. So, just, it's a reminder that, like, not everyone wants the same thing. You know, there was one journalist who was like, oh, I just loved being a foreign correspondent in this particular place because... You know the kind of the, the line between work and life dissolved, and it was so exhilarating. And then other people were like, "I really liked working in this factory because the line between work and life was so solid. Then that's exactly what I wanted." Um, so I think it's always really important to just remember that um, you know you shouldn't make assumptions about what people want. And I think you know more broadly this question of um, of part time working, I think it's important not to be too gloomy about it because you know there's loads of research to suggest that working some, but not too much, is, is good for you, it's good for your health, and people know that, and people can sense that in themselves. When I work a four-day week and I really like it, and I think, do you, you know, work, do we- d- you work on the fifth day, so? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> a bit, um, but I certainly work less than I used to, and I feel good for it, uh, although the rest of the time is obviously yes. just childcare, so it's yes. like a different kind of work, but you know, that's just the phase of life that I'm in. Um, but, you know, I, I think we don't want to find ourselves in this weird scenario where, on the one hand, people are talking about the four-day week and how great that would be, and that there are lots of employers of mostly well-paid white-collar workers being encouraged to cut hours and at the same time telling low-paid people, like, yes. you don't know what's good for you, you need to be working more. It's like, actually, maybe they do know
2: what's good for them and this is what's good for them. So
3: I think we need to kind of keep keep hold of that idea. And I
2: think that's the point, it's about the choice for the employee and making sure that that balance is in, is in that favour. And I think, it, I suppose that... Where the living hours is coming from isn't making that, that sure that that is the case choice. for those in the low, yeah. the lower jobs. It's the choice
3: piece. Yeah, I mean it goes back to the kind of the title. Yeah, I think you've given as right. As you know, that there are choices, but there are, there's also a context in which those choices are being made.
0: Right. Let's do our first poll. The um, uh, which is basically on the less on the like this policy thing but more on just this broader trend so as we've been discussing there's actually fewer people working or it's about the same numbers roughly in big picture terms working part-time the um, or sorry I should say there's a the same proportion basically of the le- workforces working part-time as was with a bit of a move into self-employment and out of employment within that should we think or should policymakers specifically so this is like what should people try to think about coming at it from an economic policy perspective rather than from an individual perspective or what they like perspective. Is it a good thing? We get less underemployment, which we were all very worried about in 2012, 11, uh, and we get a more GDP, right, which we do care about, we'd like some of, um, because we need that to pay for the gas, it turns out. The, is it a bad thing because uh, it means that there's not enough people I mean, I think it is weird. Like in in like you say, white collar lamb, there's a lot of discussion of four day weeks and everyone thinking it's this is like the growth. It's actually like everyone everyone's at it. I regularly get people telling me, including some German who supposedly will be looking at the data, saying like Oh, like every company they're all going four days a week these days and I'm like they're really not uh, you just met one person and they probably work at a charity in London the, um, uh, so is it a bad thing because the people aren't getting their life improvement or is it not a thing because we're so liberal when we think politicians should not have a view um, and they should kind of pipe down and like this is a big social trend then we are basically good old-fashioned 19th century liberals and we don't want Mr or Mrs policymaker to be having a view come on Catherine Good, bad, not a thing.
2: I think it's this is an annoying answer, but it's hard to see it out of the context of what uh, these part-time jobs are. Like. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> but
0: you can't n- now. Yeah. But given where we are, come on. The people voting don't get to have the. I'd like a bit of paper. <laughs> so which ones it going to be? Um. Go. You can do it. A bad thing. A bad thing. The um, because you want some. You want some flicks. Yeah. You want some You want life. As a part-time worker, Sarah. <laughs> so for, oh, no, I bet you are basically doing full-time, anyway go on.
3: I would say not a thing for politicians to be taking mm. a view on. I think let people make their choices, let employers adjust. You know, policymakers should be taking a view on why is work becoming more stressful and unpleasant for people and that's a yeah. problem. Then so let, take a view on the context, but then let the choices um, That, that the was choices. what I was going at. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're, both,
0: you're, both, you're both proper 19th century liberals. Right, Louise.
1: I think I'm going to have to agree.
3: um,
0: (laughs) It's the last (laughs) thing we want.
1: (laughs) Maybe we can take a few on, like, Who's doing the part time work or yeah, whether well, that's exactly. voluntary part time yeah. work, but the level itself, I don't think, is what
0: we should be. Exactly, doing exactly. I mean, just so again, this is you all agreeing, and that's very boring. So, on the, um, so countries have actually quite, I think in general people think, oh, modernity is, quite, is this, mm. right? But countries have like really different levels of part time work. Mm. So, like in France, you're either basic, I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing, but you're basically <laughs> working full time or you ain't working, particularly for women. It's basically like if you have a kid, you're coming back full time mm. and you're going to pretend you never had a kid or you're out more or less there um, again i'm slightly caricaturing but like kind of whereas like uh i think the nearest to uh, the, uh holland the netherlands is quite similar to us in having quite a, we've got quite high levels of self-employment relative to other countries my only slight thing on thinking it's a uh, this is maybe me cheating and doing something as you yeah is um <laughs> we're we're here focusing on the i so i definitely don't like again the like clear Concentration of it amongst low earners. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely think the move to more and it being so gendered is not what you want. So my only choice is I would I wouldn't mind getting I wouldn't mind reducing the number of women working part time. Particularly if I could get the number of men working part time up and not just low earning men, basically. Because in the end, unless we unless the gender gap on part time working goes, then everyone can stop pretending that anything else Everyone at the moment I've watched it recently in the last few weeks there's been quite a lot of discussion of if oh, we just solve the childcare thing make it cheaper the gender wage gap will disappear and stuff and it's just like nonsense unless we get a load of men working part time as well across the grades nothing else is going to make a difference and that's only going to happen if basically they have to stay home in the first year or so mm. Mm. Yeah. anyway that's just to try to get a bit of disagreement going right <laughs> let's move on because you know dangerously agreeing right let's go on to or let's bring up the results of the poll because you've all voted quite fast and then we can um uh, what are you going to? There you go. People want more part-time work. Is that just because you're all overworked civil servants? <laughs> just checking.
3: Because
0: it's been a bad few years, people. Uh, so okay, that's an understandable reaction to the world as you find it. The, um, uh, and look, they're not. I mean, you they are not I mean, they're not that liberal. You know. Anyway. Right. Very good. The, um, uh, let's let's move, move on to the things that we worry about. Okay. So. Um, uh, First, I think one of the things, Abby's got a great question here, so let's use that as a trigger into this wider nature of flexibility. Mm. So if uh, we bring up the question from Abby, here we go. So what should government do about flexible working legislation to let people access good quality part-time work and avoid having to work part-time involuntary? So I think one way of coming up this question is, so it isn't. people do talk about flexible working in policy world, okay? They do. If I'm honest, what they mean is what can we do to help professionals have better life, work-life balance? Right. Uh, and this definitely has a gendered perspective. There are entire organisations, some of them really good that we support, campaigning for more flexible work because they think it will allow more women to work part-time in more senior roles. Right. They're trying to deal with the progression problem. They want people. They don't want women to be stuck in part-time work, not progressing. But they basically are talking. The whole debate is about how do you make life better for like middle class people right there bluntly there it's not a phrase like that but if you actually look at who would be who would benefit from that that's it no, almost nobody i don't think anyone has ever asked me in many policy maker, from any party the issue that came up really strongly in the focus groups which is for low paid workers there's two aspects to it for low paid workers the flexibility that someone would like is the flexibility to have more hours and the firm won't offer it right, because as you were saying, the norm is the 16 hours or whatever it is at different companies, so there's a different kind of choice, like could you have, the could could there be more flexibility about the nature of the jobs that are like this yeah. in this firm, right, but it's in a different way to the issue that exists for middle and higher earners? and this other issue which is, I can't, I can't, like, so if you work at the Resolution Foundation, right, and your kid gets, your kid has to get sick at school, you will just go home and pick up a kid and you'll finish the work later that night, right, and that applies to Again, most lots of most professional work, unless your boss is an idiot. Okay, the um, that just doesn't exist for low earners, right? right. It just doesn't exist, and, so, and bad things happen in life all the time, right? And so, as a result, it's totally rational for people to say the only way I can have the same kind of flex that people who are getting paid full time and working full time, but that is by just not signing up to as many hours, because if I do and something goes wrong, I'm stuffed. Basically, do you think that, is that a fair? criticism of our labour market discussion we basically focus on the middle class part of the problem um obviously you don't in your columns but yeah But like generally the the flexibility discussion is about what happens
3: it's often about the the kind of the white why won't workers. lawyers offer
0: more part-time work why can't they let you do three three and a half days and become a partner still yeah
3: yeah i think that i think that probably is fair but i mean there are there are people and organizations that are focused on the on the, the lower paid side of this of this question yep. um, so like time-wise who yeah. actually they do they yes, do they, both but like they've done some really interesting stuff working like directly with employers of workers I remember that um, they did a trial in uh, I'm not going to say the name of the company in case I get it wrong but it was like a big pet store at is it okay yeah. um, where so they were they were tackling this problem of like if you want to progress but you want to stay part-time you can't basically in a lot of these jobs, which is a similar issue to it though.
0: Ah, uh, but I think the it's a slightly different one, because that is, but that is about people. So I think the thing I, the thing I have to wait for folks to maybe rethink this slightly is, it's people say, it's not people, they weren't saying, I can't get a promotion, because if I do, I'll be made to work full time hours, which I think is the thing. And that's what the Pets yeah. at Home study was about. Could you become a manager without having to go up to 38 hours, yeah. speed, right? They were saying, um, I wouldn't mind doing kind of like 25 hours in my current role, but if I do, I will, won't will be able to make that work around my family life, yeah. basically. So that, yeah. it's quite interesting. And because I, you, I come at it from the same workplace, time-wise, but that isn't what they were saying. It, yeah, well, anyone I mean, that's, I mean that, just, time waste that
3: just really goes to the sort of insecurity and unpredictability yeah, exactly. of hours and shift stuff, yeah. doesn't it? Which, obviously, yeah. policymakers
2: can and should, should, should do things about.
0: Very good. Yeah. Now... Um, Sorry, Gordon, are you going to...?
2: No, no, I was just endorsing that point that that's the bit that where policymakers can get involved. It's like that baseline that, like, no one should be experiencing um, of it, the complete insecurity and volatility of shifts and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. The um, uh, Now, there's lots of other good ones coming to this. On, um, on the, here's a good way of coming at it, someone's raised, which is basically, is this about power in the labour market, basically? right. The um, Now, this is coming at it from a there's lots of people, lot, it's basically if there's a loose labour market, this is what's going to happen. The, um, we obviously have a tight labour market now, but do you think we've put too much faith in just waiting for a tight labour market to turn up and it will all be okay? What do you reckon, Sarah?
3: Yes, it's one of the questions that I've, I'm sort of keen to try and get to the bottom of right now is, you know, to what extent is the tight labour market tackling some of these particular issues that have been a problem at the at the bottom end for a long time. Um, and I don't have any good answers yet. I mean, anecdotally, I've definitely noticed more low-paid employers offering, you know, employers who might have had like a five and seven job, or might have had a kind of, the shifts are 12 hours a day, day in, day out. You're on your feet, you take it or leave it. will be, and now like, we've got some school hours jobs available. Or, um, you know, I saw a, an advert on the back of a, a toilet door in a cafe saying, you know, we realise that um, you have a life outside work. And so we're willing to, like, talk about flexibility in terms of shifts and, you know, that sort of thing. I think a few years ago, it would have been much more like this is what we expect from you. You can take it or leave it. So I think there's maybe maybe the tightness of the labor market is having some effect. But I've got no way of, sort of quantifying the
2: extent of that. I, we would we've seen that and when I talked earlier about the surgeon in interested in living outwards, like I do understand that that's partly what's driving it is like people are looking at how to make these roles more attractive. Um but I think always there's still room for policy to bring up the floor, you know, you don't you don't yeah. have to just wait for that. Like obviously there's a long awaited employment bill, there's ways that we could do this. Um so
3: Well also a tight labour market might not last much longer.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't rely on that I mean, for the, the Bank for of the England term. isn't directly
0: trying to stop it. Yeah, but, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, so right.
2: it should come in and push up the floor
0: mm. um, right Louise why don't you take this one which is basically on the um, so on this wider the the wider tax and benefit system and how that's changed that how that might change incentives both for the workers but also for the firms on the tax side
1: yeah yeah I think it's um, yeah like an interesting part of the the story so I think I guess on the employer side we've talked a little bit about these norms It's <laughs> certainly the case that in su- certainly in some sectors you know there's just a few packages basically on offer you either work 16 hours or you work you know 35 hours and we definitely heard that in the focus groups that people said you know in some senses they feel like they can choose whether they work full-time or part-time but they didn't feel like they had choice over their exact number of hours and particularly among some people with children they said you know my kids are now at school i wouldn't mind up in my hours a little bit you know say from 16 to 25 hours but that just wasn't possible so they were kind of stuck doing fewer hours than they would like because there was that barrier. And I think, you know, there's reasons for this. Some of it is sort of legacy from the old benefit system or there were these sort of 16-hour cut-offs. There's also incentives for employers, so often it's cheaper um, in terms of sort of national insurance contributions to employ two part-time workers than it is one full-time worker. Um, And again, I guess we heard in our focus groups from some people that they felt like this sort of approach from an employer was particularly the case in certain sectors. So some saying, you know, they feel like their employer kind of likes to have lots of part-time staff on the payroll because it allows them to kind of manage fluctuations and demand throughout the year. Um, and they basically thought it's, you know, the employer has the power there. That was beneficial to them. So why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they do that? Um, I think just a final thing on the benefit system. I think it is an interesting angle to this. I think on the one hand. You know, under the Universal Credit system, we don't have these sort of very concrete cut-offs at, at 16 hours, um, so we should reflect that. But there are still barriers in the benefit system from people increasing their working hours. We hear a lot about kind of marginal deduction rates with reference to higher earners. People kind of complaining about people paying kind of top rates of tax, but actually, for a low earner, um, because of sort of the way that the taper rate in Universal Credit works. If you increase your hours, it's not you know you don't you don't receive a great deal of that extra money. Um, and finally, with regards to childcare, if you're receiving childcare th- support through Universal Credit, there are caps on that, which are, you know, by and large, way less than what it would cost to pay for full-time childcare. So, it, in some ways, that incentivises people with children to work part-time because there's no way they could pay for full-time childcare through Universal Credit. What
0: well, do you think, Sarah? So? On this on this like how much how much a firm's how much of firm's doing what they're doing because either they've got a lasting norm maybe associated with which gender was traditionally working in that sector and don't want to flex around it is it the tax system
3: i've got some sympathy for employers in that i think um you know you design if you're a big employer and you're running like a supermarket or something like you've got to design the workflow and the shifts and you know someone might come along and say actually I now want five extra hours but that doesn't necessarily work in the kind of very complicated sort of rotoring um, system that you've got so I can see why it would make sense if you were a larger employer to have these packages and, and similarly like if you're a small employer it might be if you're employing someone for 16 hours a week well, be because that's how much work you have for oh, them yeah. so you can't just give them more work if you don't have um, the demand to To match it albeit you know most employers are complaining about labour shortages right now so whether or not that's a that's a constraint i don't know um i would still like you to answer my question though about in-work conditionality and whether you think that's a solution to this problem or not because i think you know we're we're talking about this but we need to acknowledge that the government has a very strong view on this and a policy aimed at addressing it so do we think that it's a good one or not
0: so we're going to lose it um yeah i
1: mean i think bluntly put I think it's unlikely to make much of a difference given that what we've seen in this research is that people face constraints so having a work coach to encourage or support or push people to work um, more hours on its own is unlikely to be that successful when you know I think what we really saw is that people work part-time for a huge variety of reasons and so one kind of sort of broad brush approach is unlikely to, to make a difference unless we tackle those wider um, constraints.
0: I mean, one of the, so one of the um, obviously bigger picture challenges is once we moved to universal credit from the tax credit system, it basically became inevitable that we were going to end up putting more pressure on this in-work conditionality mm. side of things. And basically, we don't know how to do it very There's no good evidence. No one else does this around the world, OK, really. We've got no experience of doing it. Um, and so I think you're putting basically a lot of eggs in the mm. we don't know how to we, in a basket that's got may have like some massive holes in, and you're and also I mean you you can see that there's a, someone here has raised um, the increase that's going on now in sanctioning mm. and conditionality. Now I think a lot of that is to do with the post pandemic period where they're very worried about basically fraud slash um, the increased caseload. So it's partly reflecting that. The, um, Deborah has raised it here, which I can't find for some reason. Um, but yeah, I, I think we shouldn't put, we basically have put a lot of faith in something that we don't know whether it works mm. um, at all. But saying, I mean, people weren't proactively, in the first roots, they weren't proactively raising, I'm not increasing my hours because of the marginal deduction rates, because I'll only get a pound in three back, basically.
1: No, and I think increasingly or sort of overwhelmingly, People didn't speak about their working hours in that kind of mm-hmm. rational, economic way. You know, people said it's a family decision, it depends on their stage of life. Um, you know, it depends on all of these different things, not just, you know, whether it makes sense. And actually, for a lot of women, some of them said, I don't really need the money. I don't really think about whether it, it you know, it pays. It's actually just, you know, that sense of getting out of the house, doing something that's good for their well-being and their sense of self. So. It's definitely not the case that all part-time workers are thinking in that, in that way. Mm. I do think we should allow people to trade off time for
3: money if they want to, or vice versa. Um, I saw that there was a quote from someone in one of your focus groups who said, "I think you must have asked them about the cost of living crisis," and she said, "Well, I could increase my hours, but I'd rather just wear a dressing gown and have a hot water bottle." It's like, well, fair enough. If that's the choice you want to make, that's the choice you want to make, yeah. right? I mean, you can't force people to choose work over leisure if they don't want to.
0: Even if, we were, if we, even if we were that illiberal we wouldn't really know, <laughs> we're not competent enough to do that anyway. It's the same thing everyone keeps saying, everyone, the government is like you say obsessed about um, every, people having dropped out of the labour market right now and keep saying we've got to get them back to work so we'll do this in the benefit system. And I keep saying to them, these people aren't on benefits. Yeah, exactly. They're not on benefits, they are taking an income hit in lots of cases mm-hmm. but they're, they're 62 and they've decided mm-hmm. that's what they're going to do, good luck devising your like policy intervention, mm. you're going to target that person, it's actually going to work. I mean, like you've got a lot of faith in the uh, ability of policy to make a difference on that. Right, let's take a last poll and then we'll wrap up for final thoughts from the panel. It's been really interesting. The, um, so, having heard all of that, again, this is totally, obviously, our whole message is there isn't a single reason. So, like this is unfair. But anyway, uh, what is the what's the biggest reason? And what do you conclude is the biggest reason people are going with? Well, Louise, you've had a long time to think about this writing a report so you can go first and then we'll go along the panel. Um,
1: I think if we're thinking about low earners in particular, I think probably the second one that I think I mean everything else plays a part, but I think people really spoke about their decisions around work in the context of you know jobs being unpleasant or inflexible or you know basically a bit bad. so I think that was a, a really a big thing.
0: Catherine.
2: Um, I'd say two and three, and it depends how low down you go, the earnings part-time, and the contract length. So the shorter the contract, the more likely you're to be in three. Um, So, you know, we talk to people of one to eight hours a week. You know, you're talking about 16 hours, but there's a lot of people here who are completely like short shift, short contracts, short shift notice, and that would be number three. Good. Sarah? Um...
3: Well, if you're doing that, I'm going to choose two. I think it's I think it's one and two. I think it's basically people are trying to make... Yeah, the people are just trying to live. They're trying to live as well as they can within the context yeah. of the labour market in which they find themselves, and this is the solution that they've come to.
0: Very good. OK, let's see what uh, you all thought at home. Who convinced you? No one's gone for... for there you go. Louise did effective lobbying. Uh, they, um, and look, everyone else, they stuck to um, one. OK, why don't we... Let's uh, go with that, and then let's have one last... Uh, thought and then to wrap it, which is so, so this is very much focused on why our lower earners work in part-time and as Sarah and I think you've all said in different ways so, some of this is quite sectorally focused yeah. and occupationally focused so accommodation of food services agriculture raised the, um, uh, is how much of that and then that brings with it this issue and there are people are saying to us well just because I don't want to have to work weekends and I work part-time if I work full-time I'm going to be made to work weekends or evenings I don't want to do it S- some of that is inevitable because the nature of some of this low paid work for exactly the same reasons people aren't doing home working Mm -hmm. is that it's face to face and the transaction has to happen when you're working, right? You you don't want your, your your waiter or waitress is not going to be home working and Mm -hmm. is going to be working when you're coming in to eat and that isn't that that flexible because people come to eat at (laughs) like breakfast (coughs) if they're feeling. So do we, how much of this should we think is inevitable feature of the actual nature of the work rather than something that policymakers have some control over by improving the quality or the flexibility of the work
3: um so this is a good question and it's a question that is often raised when we (coughs) when we talk about long hours and demanding jobs at the high end as well you know there'll be people who say well you know a global law firm has to have people working around the clock because we've got clients in dubai we've got clients in asia and all the rest of it and you just you know when you're when your client says jump you have to say how high at the moment that they say it so i think this is a um, uh, this is an, a, a question that that goes right across the income distribution um i think my answer is that we shouldn't um well like we shouldn't have low ambitions on this right like it's true of course that the world is more connected um a lot more services at, at 24 hours a day or, or seven days a week So clearly there will be, there will need to be people who work at like antisocial hours. But you can still design that in a way that is as compatible with having a life that is worth living. (laughs) Rather than saying like, your time is at my disposal and I will let you know on the day when I expect you to be available. Like there are still ways within, within that, that are probably more inconvenient and slightly more expensive, but that still exist that would have a less damaging effect on people's like mental health and family life and the rest of it.
0: Okay, right, well, let's, um, let's wrap up with last thoughts for each of you, maybe along the lines of like, what's your big reflection on this issue, but also maybe is there anything where you've changed your mind, either from the report or just over like, having you've all people that have spent time thinking about this over the years, is there anything where you've kind of changed your mind about how you think about it, given that it is an issue that doesn't have, does have some tensions within it. Louise.
1: Um, so, I mean, I think, I guess just worth. I think the big thing that, that we, I guess, at the Resolution Foundation, kind of found when doing this piece of work is that we shouldn't, um, I guess, understate the, the benefits that people kind of feel that part-time work gives them. So I think sometimes, you know, in sort of yeah, think tanks or policy world, we kind of lump together part-time work with, you know, bad work basically. And I think we shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. And we shouldn't. Um, yeah, we shouldn't be lazy basically when talking about it um, but I think the other main takeaway was there's no one easy solution to this we shouldn't treat all part-time workers as potential full-time workers um, and actually we need to really think about the the different constraints that, that people are facing.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The This is is nuanced. It's a whole group of people. Um, But I think it, it, in a way, for me, it just shines a spotlight even more on those at the bottom where it is difficult and it is volatile and it is affecting standards. And it's, as always, it's about bringing up the bar for them rather than necessarily looking at the whole package and saying, well, this is a solution to it all. But there is definitely a lot more that can be done to provide some better quality in those jobs where, you know, it's really short contracts, really... Short notice of shifts cancellation and so on. There is a lot that can be done to bring that bar up, Um, and you know it's not completely inevitable. The roles we were talking about, we've got loads of living hours employers who are in the hospitality sector. It just requires more organisation and forward planning on the part of employer, and in turn that forces you to think a bit longer term about planning. There's loads of other business benefits. It's just about. putting in that effort to improve the quality even in these jobs where we think oh well of course it's difficult and rubbish because it's hospitality no it doesn't have to be that way and that's not what we found in the work that we've done so it's absolutely the more that can be done to bring up that bottom floor.
0: Last to you. Um,
3: I suppose the thing I found striking from the report and the, the discussion is that even though this is clearly an issue that is more prevalent at the at the bottom end of the income distribution actually a lot of the bigger sort of themes and problems and questions are things that i think extend across all kinds of jobs so just a reminder that like let's not kind of <coughs> segment everything and, and talk about it as if it exists in a complete vacuum i think a lot of these things we could do with sorting out for everyone
0: very good we should definitely sort everything out for everyone that's a good, that's a good objective to have uh, in that life. Next year Yeah, that's next year's paper how to sort everything out for everybody right okay can we all uh, thank our panel very much indeed this morning and Louise, for doing all of the um, hard work. We should thank the Health Foundation for supporting this and the ongoing uh, project. Uh, it turns out that like the hours we work in life, like everything in life, are complicated. The um, uh, But the concentration of this part-time work amongst lower earners is definitely a standout feature of the yeah. 21st century. It deserves a bit more attention. Um, I hope we manage to navigate the ambiguity today of people valuing it Um, who are doing it but also that there are significant constraints that shape that and that we should aim to release those Um, uh, so hopefully that's come across but um, on the ambiguity hopefully it's unambiguous you're going to have a good day however many hours you're working so off you go and do it have a good day everyone see you soon thank you for listening to this resolution foundation event you can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the resolution foundation website